I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks. scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. And welcome to the other side of this election. I don't know about you, but boy, since Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were elected, I've gotten so many texts and emails and phone calls that are full of joy and hope and just good old-fashioned relief. You know, there's a lot to try to figure out about this election, who turned out in record numbers, where, what they had to overcome to do that, really what all of it means for our president-elect and for our democracy. So for help trying to figure it out, I'm checking in with three fantastic guests today. We have Ari Berman, a journalist who's written extensively about voting rights and voter suppression in this country. We'll also hear from journalist Soledad O'Brien, who has a really focused view of what the press has to do better in order to cover politics and elections. But first, I wanted to check in with someone who's getting a lot of much-deserved gratitude right now for her role in Georgia, Stacey Abrams. 
You may remember that Stacey ran for governor in 2018. I think it's uh, absolutely fair to say that the election was taken from her because of all the shenanigans to prevent people from registering, prevent them from voting, make voting really difficult. But she never quit. She just went back to work organizing and speaking out about what needs to be done to help our democracy thrive. And wow, we saw it in action as Georgia turned blue. I just want to add my voice to the chorus and say thank you, thank you, thank you, not just for coming back on the podcast uh, post-election, but for everything you did to help Georgia turn blue and help uh, so many people across the country have the energy to keep going. So on a scale of like one to 10, Stacey, how excited are you? I believe infinity is a number <laughs> technically. I mean, look, this this is extraordinary. It's, as you know, it's been a project I've been working on for a decade with so many other folks really trying to build an infrastructure, raise the resources and make certain that people did the investment. We have been able to finally bring all of those pieces together and I do not believe there is a numerical scale. Hallelujah. Exactly. <laughs> Hallelujah. When I think about the work that went into it, I have to just pause and say this was truly an act of faith. You believed in uh, the potential for Georgia to have an election that would empower people to vote, that would give them a stake in their vote. And it's so exciting to see all that hard work pay off. What were some of the reasons why decades ago you started thinking about this and then, you know, moving forward made it a real priority? Well, as you know, I am a daughter of the South. I, I was born in Wisconsin, but I grew up in Mississippi. I came of age in Georgia. I went to grad school in Texas. I went to law school at our alma mater in the Northeast at Yale. I came back South as soon as humanly possible because I don't like cold weather. And <laughs> when I got back to Georgia, we were going through both a political realignment with Republicans taking over, but we were also going through a demographic realignment that was just taking off. And by the time I joined the legislature in 2006, when I became leader in 2010, I was deeply aware of the possibilities, but also the obstacles. And so I actually put together a 21-page deck uh, when I became leader, where I laid out, here's the growth strategy for Georgia Democrats from 2010 to 2020. And I would take that deck with me and I paid for my plane ticket and went to see investors around the country who weren't going to give us no money. But I'm like, look, you're not going to give me anything now, but I want to introduce myself and tell you about my plan. So when I come back, you'll do it. And I did it again and again. And, and I want to give credit to so many other people who did this work. I think the, the distinction was that for me, it was about thinking about how do you build the infrastructure? So it didn't matter who the candidate was. It didn't matter who was doing the work as long as there was a structure so people could pour in and we had the money we needed. And so over time, we were able to raise you know, millions of dollars and I, I've become a really good beggar. <laughs> and we've been able to raise money for voter registration, for voter engagement, for voter turnout, but also training and recruiting young people to become involved in the party, building policy potential thinking about the holistic notion of what it means to be a Democrat, not just winning elections, but how do you win hearts, minds, and how do you build sustainability so it doesn't matter who's doing it, all of us are moving in the same direction. And it came to fruition in this election. 
But we can't forget that Georgia's got two really important consequential Senate races coming up. They've gone to a runoff and this election will be held in January. And actually, it's going to determine whether President-elect Biden will, as president, have a majority in the Senate so that he can get things done that will actually improve people's lives. Tell us about those two races. What can our listeners do to help the candidates win, be part of uh, continuing the Georgia movement that worked so well in the presidential election and actually helped to propel both of our candidates into a runoff? I'm privileged to be friends with both candidates. John Ossoff, who is in the race against David Perdue, uh, who has just proven himself to be corrupt both intellectually and economically, someone who put his profits above the lives of people. QAnon Kelly Leffler, who has decided to abandon all principles and side with conspiracy theorists, and who also decided that money was more important than the mission she was supposed to have, which is serving Georgians. Uh, She is running against Raphael Warnock, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Reverend Warnock and I have been friends for 15 years, and he was actually one of my partners in the New Georgia Project when we started registering voters. Those two races are both essential in their own right, and they are working together, which is so critical. So the three things I need folks to do, one, go to gasenate.com. That way you can contribute to both candidates and to the work we're doing, a fair fight to protect the vote. Republicans noticed that we had an incredible infrastructure for voter turnout and for getting those ballots in. I have no reason to believe they're going to let it continue the way it is. So we need the resources so we can fight back and protect the right to vote. Number two, go to fairfightaction.com. You can sign up to be a volunteer. We will help deploy you and direct you. Yes, we need everyone's help. Not everyone needs to come to Georgia, but everyone needs to pour into Georgia. And so we'll be able to connect you to volunteer opportunities. And then number three, Reach out to anyone you know who is in Georgia, near Georgia, been to Georgia, can spell Georgia, and just let them know how important this election is. <laughs> we have the chance to fix America. Yeah. yeah. Just, just a small yeah. you know, step in uh, the development of mankind and womankind. Exactly. Uh, we can fix Georgia. We can fix, and we can fix America. Look, we can have access to health care, access to justice, and access to jobs. Those are the three things that are most essential. These are the two men who will get it done if we do our part and we don't relax, we don't relent, and we do everything we can to push them over the finish line on January 5th. Well, I think all of us are going to be following uh, your lead once again because we have you know, a few short weeks to exactly. try to continue this positive movement that uh, Georgia has demonstrated you know, Stacey, I know how busy you are. You've been you know, rallying the troops, thanking people for everything that they've done. Have you had a minute just to sit back and take it in, put your feet up, relax at all? I think I had like 14 minutes on Sunday. <laughs> but look, we, we got some work to do. <laughs> we got work to do. You're a woman after my own heart, Stacey Abrams. Love you so much. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you, Secretary. As we heard from Stacy, our work's not done yet, and all eyes are on Georgia. So if you want to pitch in, visit electjohn, that's J-O-N, dot com, that's J-O-N, dot com, and Warnock for Georgia, dot com, that's Warnock, W-A-R-N-O-C-K. 
You've probably seen Ari Berman on MSNBC, or maybe you've heard his voice on NPR or read his writings in Mother Jones and other publications, because he is a senior reporter for Mother Jones and the author of the book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman. Hey, Secretary Clinton. Good to see you. I am so happy to speak with you. You may not be a household name in many households in America, but you are in mine. And I want our listeners to know that you have been on the front lines of journalism about our elections and particularly about the challenges to voting, voter suppression, tricks and shenanigans to keep people from voting. And you have a unique position from which to view what we have just experienced. And when I thought about who I wanted to talk to after the election, your name was at the top of the list. How how have you spent the past week since the election? You know, it feels like just yesterday, but also a lifetime ago. Well, thank you so much, Secretary Clinton. And it's a real honor to be able to have this conversation with you, especially now. And when I think of the people that I wanted to talk to <laughs> after the election, uh, you were at the top of my list. So I'm really glad that we got to do this. So, I mean, on the one hand, it was a really chaotic end to the election. But on the other hand, it was a really successful end to the election when you think about it, because there were unprecedented threats to voting in this election. There were so many questions about would people be able to vote? Would their votes be counted? And we saw that people turned out in record numbers, that their votes were counted, that yes, it took a few days to for all the votes to be counted, and some of the votes are still being counted, but the process worked. The system worked. It was a legitimate election. The people came out, they voted, their votes were counted, and ultimately, they change the direction of this country. And so I know there's a lot of disinformation, there's a lot of noise, but from my standpoint, there were so many nightmare scenarios that I had about how this election played out. And for it to be basically over by Saturday morning was, from my standpoint, a huge (laughs) success. I agree with that, Ari. And a couple of my takeaways that I wanted to run by you are that the election itself worked in part because people actually got to cast their votes. The kind of suppression tactic that we saw a lot of in 2016 and 2018, where people were literally disenfranchised. You know, they were not allowed to register. They were allowed to register, but then when they showed up, they were turned away because of, you know, some alleged problem with their ID. And I think we learned a lot from 2016 and 2018, and we also were advantaged by having Democratic office holders, for example, in Wisconsin and Michigan, and bright spotlights on the office holders in Georgia and Arizona. So we learned that pre-voting suppression is actually a more terrible, successful tactic than trying to mess with the actual votes. And I'm really encouraged by that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that happened in 2016 when you were running was a lot of the suppression was in back rooms and people didn't know about it. So it was the first presidential election in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. 
because the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. It said that states with a long history of discrimination didn't have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. So that allowed news suppression efforts in the South and the West. And then you had states in the North, like Wisconsin, uh, passing new suppression efforts as well. But it didn't really get any coverage. Mm -hmm. And it was such a different story in 2020. I can't tell you the number of people that told me the day after the 2016 election. I finally understand what you're writing about. Oh, exactly. And I think there really was a realization, we're not going to allow history to repeat itself. And then the fact that Trump was so open about what he was doing, the fact that he said, if you made it easier to vote, a Republican would never be elected again. The fact that he said he didn't want to fund the post office because he didn't want to expand mail voting. The fact that he said, we're going to send the lawyers in right after the election. All of that made people aware there's an attempt to try to prevent you from voting. So do everything you can, everything you absolutely can to make sure your vote is counted. So we had the kind of movement against suppression in 2020 that was missing, unfortunately, in 2016. You know, I know we don't have a lot of data yet. I've been searching for it myself. But do you have some preliminary information about how the vote broke down, who turned out, where they turned out, anything you can share with us? Well, I think Georgia is a great example. I mean, it, it seemed like Black voters in Georgia really propelled Joe Biden to what looks like a likely victory in that state. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up because in, in 2018, there was so much suppression in Georgia where you actually had the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, also running for governor <laughs> and putting in place all of these policies, whether it was making it more difficult to vote or closing polling places or falsely accusing Democrats of hacking the election. Uh, that really kept Stacey Abrams from being uh, the first uh, black woman governor in U.S. history. Then you had the primaries in Georgia back in June where people were still voting at 12.30 a.m. at night. And I think the pandemic really exposed a lot of this suppression because you're right, it, it got a little bit of attention in 2016. It got more attention in 2018. But I think the fact that you saw those lines in Milwaukee in April when there were only five polling places instead of 180 and you had people holding signs in line that says, this is ridiculous. People were so much more aware of the problems with our voting system. And so they were willing to wait in 11-hour lines mm -hmm. to be able to vote. They dropped their ballots off because they didn't trust the post office. They turned out in record numbers early so there wouldn't be problems on election day. And I think all of that, the fact that there were so many organizations helping people vote, but also that voters themselves really listened and made a plan. When Michelle Obama said, <laughs> make a plan, exactly. people made a plan. Right. And I think that's why we had, in a lot of ways, a more successful election uh, than some of us were maybe preparing for. You know, a lot of political analysis, frankly, endless political analysis and journalistic reporting, you know, focused on the white working class. That's the demographic that so many people after the 2016 election were trying to understand and trying to, you know, give a voice to. But if you look at what happened in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, it was the Black community that turned out that wasn't suppressed the way that it had been in 2016. They really overcame what had been real barriers. And I think, you know, you have written about that, how they helped Biden win Wisconsin, and also, I would argue, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Biden didn't win because of white voters. If, <laughs> if, if this election was decided by people like you and me, Donald Trump would have had a second term. And so it absolutely was Black voters in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, 
Michigan, it was Latino voters in Nevada and Arizona. It was Native American voters in Arizona. I mean, these are the groups that turned out in record numbers and turned out for Joe Biden. A lot of people learned from 2016. I mean, take Wisconsin. There was really no organizing going on in the Black community in Milwaukee in 2016 to try to help people vote. There just wasn't the kind of energy on the ground in terms of organizing. And I think people realize we can't let this happen again. We have to invest in these communities if we want to have the kind of turnout we need. And so there was a lot more resources invested and a lot more community groups working in in places like Milwaukee. People were very, very resilient that that was not going to happen again, that the votes that were being targeted for suppression ended up being the votes that made the difference for Joe Biden in this election. We'll be right back. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you 
sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I loved your tweet on November the 6th, where you said black voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and Latino voters in Arizona, Nevada ended the Trump presidency. Muslim and Arab voters also made a big difference in states like Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona. You're the first person that I saw say that. Can you explain it? Yeah, well, I'm just thinking about all these different demographics. And there was so much attention on the white working class vote in the aftermath of the election, even into the run-up of the 2020 election. Yes, the whole question exactly. was, you know, what, what, Let's were, go to what will white voters do? Let's go to another diner interview another guy in a mega hat. I mean, really, come I on. I mean, the, the, the New York <laughs> Times did a story about white voters in suburban Atlanta, and they were actually quoting officials from the Republican Party as those white voters. And they weren't spending any time talking to Muslim and Arab voters in Dearborn, Michigan, or talking to Native American voters in Navajo Nation, or talking to Black voters in Milwaukee. And these are the people that made a difference. These are also a lot of the communities that have been hit hardest by COVID. That's right. And so just to think about, you know, Navajo Nation, which voted 97% for Joe Biden, the, the amount of death and hardship that's happened there. And I, I really think for these communities, it really was life and death. Yes. I, I think for some yes. people, it was just an election, but for others, it was life and death. And I think the stakes were raised for the communities that were targeted by suppression, that were hit hardest by COVID, that, that have had their economies decimated. The election meant more to them. And I think there's a reason why they turned out in such high numbers. And I think there's a reason why they made such a big difference in the outcome. I want to ask you about the path ahead, because You started using the term a couple of years ago in your writing about the Roberts Court gutting the Voting Rights Act, the uh, unleashing of voter suppression tactics in a lot of states following that, and describing the people who were trying to turn the clock back as counter-revolutionaries. That has always stuck with me, Ari, because, you know, a lot of 
people understandably are slowly looking at what happened with the Voting Rights Act being gutted with Citizens United. I, I was also the first candidate to run with Citizens United in full force. And how much more work it takes to overcome a counter-revolution. Can you say a little bit about your perception of where we are right now with the forces that are not going to sit silently by? They are persistent, if nothing else. Lindsey Graham, who I don't know what's happened to him, said, you know, just uh, the other day that, uh, you know, if, if people keep voting, Republicans will never win. I mean, what an admission of exactly what they're afraid of. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I don't think we should believe that because people turned out in record numbers, these barriers didn't exist. I mean, people turned out despite the fact the Voting Rights Act was gutted. People turned out despite the fact that the post office was sabotaged. People turned out despite the fact that polling places were closed and people were turned away from the voting rolls and they had to wait 11 hours to vote. I mean, people overcame these barriers, but it took a massive, massive effort to overcome them. And we still have those counter-revolutionaries that are opposed to voting rights in some very powerful positions. We now not only have a five to four court, we have a six to three court that leans to the right. And so that is not good news for voting rights. And that is going to be a very, very difficult thing uh, to navigate going forward. And I'm very concerned that they're going to further weaken the Voting Rights Act and they're going to further chip away at our democracy. As of now, Mitch McConnell is still in control right. of the Senate. That is going to make it very difficult to pass legislation to restore the Voting Rights Act or to make it easier to vote. Republicans are still in control at the state level of states like Wisconsin, of states like Pennsylvania. Some of these states have Democratic governors. Some places like Texas and Florida do not. They have one-party control heading into redistricting in 2021, which means they could draw even more egregious maps uh, for the next decade. So the fight for democracy is not over. I really, really think this is important that people not get complacent just because Joe Biden won. That is one very, very, very important accomplishment. I mean, Joe Biden may have literally saved American democracy mm -hmm. uh, by becoming elected president, because who knows what would have happened under four more years of Donald Trump. He doesn't control the Supreme Court. He doesn't control the U.S. Senate. He doesn't control many of the states, or his allies don't control many of the states. And so all of those threats to democracy still exist, and, and we shouldn't ignore them just because Biden was elected. I already worry that we're having the totally wrong conversation after the election, because we're already in this place where Republicans are talking over and over about massive irregularities, and then now people are trying to say, disprove them, right? And, and it's almost like you're trying to disprove something that doesn't exist, as opposed to saying, this was not an election that we should repeat. We should not exactly. go through this again. We should not have these kind of barriers in front of voters again. And what are we doing to make sure that these barriers don't exist? And I, and I worry that all of this talk of delegitimizing the election while it's not going to change the outcome and it's not mm -hmm. going to prevent Biden from being elected, I do worry it's going to lead Republicans to double down on a voter suppression effort right? based on falsehoods and imaginary conspiracy theories. But they're going to convince themselves either they're going to believe it or they're going to be political opportunists. And they're going to say, look at all the irregularities in Detroit or Milwaukee or Philly. And because of that, we have to institute even more barriers to prevent people from voting as opposed to tearing those barriers down. It's so ridiculous. We've done study after study and by conservative, by liberal, by right, by left, by all kinds of think tanks. And there is very little fraud when it comes to the voter. 
I think there's a lot of fraud when it comes to the people setting up the elections and running them, as we have unfortunately seen. But I take exactly what you're saying. You know, it will be difficult for a President Biden to do much from the national level with Mitch McConnell still, you know, standing in the way of everything that uh, needs to be done. And it will be a quite a challenge to get the Supreme Court to care about any of these issues. So I think we're going to have to have a state and local bottoms-up kind of strategy, similar to the litigation that Mark Elias and others have been bringing to try to, you know, get into state courts, get into state constitutions, get into state laws, try to fix the, you know, the problems at the state and local level. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think there are some states that are, are really positive models. You look at Virginia, for example. When Democrats finally got control of both the governorship and the legislature of Virginia, they very, very rapidly instituted policies that made it easier to vote. So Virginia had 45 days of early voting this year, for example. They got rid of the need uh, to have a witness signature on your absentee ballot, which was very confusing to people. They repealed the state's photo ID law. They did all of these things to make it easier to vote. And there was record turnout in Virginia and voting went very smoothly in Virginia. You didn't hear any real problems other than long lines, which was due to high turnout at the beginning of the election. And so I do think that that's really important. And I, I do think that there's going to be some places where we're going to see the kind of changes we need. In, in Michigan, for example, they're going to have an independent redistricting commission for 2021. So they're not going to have the kind of gerrymandering that you saw right, in right. the past decade. But in states where Republicans are in control, this is going to be a long battle. And I think people have to draw the lesson that Stacey Abrams did after 2018, which is that just because you lose an election, you don't stop organizing. Exactly. Well, I, I can't uh, have a conversation with you without mentioning the Electoral College. You know, on Thursday, November 5th, two days after the election, you wrote, truly insane that we're obsessing over 1,900 votes in Georgia when Biden is leading by 4 million votes nationwide. Now, that's a reflection about how the Electoral College distorts our democratic uh, process. Now, even though it's unlikely, do you think that there's any chance that we could change or even abolish the Electoral College so that our elections for president reflected our elections for everybody else? The person with the most votes, and obviously I take this personally, becomes the person who's elected. I mean, I would hope so. It was really crazy on election night around 11 p.m. when everyone was biting their teeth and wondering what was going to happen in all of these states. Biden pulled ahead mm-hmm. in the popular vote, and you just mm-hmm. knew his lead was going to grow and grow and grow. And and because states like California and New York and Illinois are becoming even bluer, because Democrats are turning out even more votes in Texas, you knew that his margin was going to be four or five, it could be six million votes mm-hmm. while it's over. And when we spent so much time obsessing over polls in the run-up to the election, it was always clear there was never any doubt that Biden was going to win the popular vote, just like there was never any doubt that you were going to win the popular vote. And your election was not a particularly close election if you look no, at, I know. at the popular vote. And, and same with this election. And then this kept going on for days, right, where we're talking about 10,000 vote margins in states. And we were wondering what was going to happen with the latest batch of results from Maricopa <laughs> County when, meanwhile, this popular vote number went from 1 million to 2 million to 3 million to 4 million. And so 
I don't think the message from the election it should be, oh, the electoral college works. Um, oh, we don't, I don't, we don't need either. to get rid of it because no, it, no. it was still an election that was decided by five or six states, right. and so many votes don't count. And so I think the quickest way to get rid of the electoral college would be for states to join uh, the interstate popular vote compact, which basically says they will pledge their electors to the right. winner of the popular vote nationwide because you don't need legislation to do that. Mm -hmm. You just need Mm -hmm. states to sign on to it. And didn't Colorado just- Colorado just did that, exactly. Just did that. The longer route, obviously, would be a constitutional amendment. It's not going to happen, though. It's not going to happen anytime soon. But the funny thing is, I don't really understand why Republicans are so invested in the Electoral College when so many of their voters- are frozen out too. I mean, if you're a Republican in California or New York, your vote really doesn't matter either when it mm-hmm. comes to presidential elections. Mm-hmm. You don't really have any s- sort of say. And so basically, if, if you live in 35 states of the country, it's very, very unlikely that a presidential candidate's ever going to visit your state. And mm-hmm. we had a broader map this year in the sense that Georgia was in right. play and Texas mm-hmm. was theoretically Arizona, in play. Arizona, right. Arizona. But it wasn't a broad map. It was still 10 states, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, you know how it is being in New York. I mean, people come here to ask for money, but yes. nobody ever comes to ask for our votes. Mm-hmm. And same with California. Same if you live in Texas, for the most part. And I just think that it's really, really difficult to reconcile the Electoral College with any kind of core democratic principles. I want to ask you a kind of uh, question about Trump. He has done his best and will continue, aided and abetted by his allies, to undermine the legitimacy of this election. What happens if he not only doesn't concede, which I don't think he will, frankly, but tries to throw all kinds of roadblocks into the transition? He already has directed his officials not to cooperate with the Biden transition, which is a first because, you know, once the election's over, you're supposed to start cooperating so the incoming administration can get prepared. So what happens? He refuses to concede. And and then what, Ari? Well, the good news is that the president doesn't really have any authority over how votes are counted and how votes are certified. <laughs> so there's really not a whole lot he can do except complain. They're filing all of these lawsuits, but they're not really amounting anything. There's no evidence it's based on, and all the votes have basically already been counted already. So right now we're in the process of finishing the vote counts in all of these states. There, there might be a recount in Georgia, but nothing's going to take that long. Then those votes are going to be certified by state and local authorities pretty quickly. Some states it takes a week, some states it takes two weeks, some states it takes three weeks. So that's going to happen relatively soon. Then electors are going to be pledged uh, in December. December 14th is the date that electors are pledged. And I'm anticipating everything is going to be done by then because we're not in a Bush 2000 situation. This is not a 537 vote election. Mm -hmm. The closest state right now is 10,000 votes in Georgia. And litigation rarely, if ever, changes a margin that big. Then once the electors are, are nominated, Congress is going to certify that result in early January, and Joe Biden is going to be the next president. So I think they're trying to slow the process down, and obviously they're trying to raise doubts about the process, but Trump doesn't actually control any aspect of that process, from the counting to the certification to what Congress does. Now, his allies, I'm sure, are going to raise a stink, but I anticipate this process will play out as past processes do, and I'm sure you know, I mean, other than yourself, Joe Biden is probably the most prepared person to ever become president. So, I mean, even if the Trump campaign's not cooperating with them, I'm pretty sure they know what to do in terms of a presidential transition, right? I mean- Yeah, I agree. Right? Either way, that he's going to be prepared to become president on January 20th. 
Do you have any, you know, final words about what you think listeners should be focused on as we go through a lame duck session, as we have a president who continues to undermine the legitimacy of our elections? And then when we get a new president, how we should be thinking about our democracy? Yeah, I would urge people to keep their eyes on the prize. As John Lewis said, I mean, there's going to be a lot of disinformation out there. I don't think we need to relitigate the outcome of the 2020 election. I think we just need to emphasize people voted in record numbers. Their votes were counted. The system worked. There were no irregularities. And I don't think it's particularly productive to try to tweet back at Donald Trump anymore about what he's saying. I think it's time to move on and start to focus on the real solutions to our democracy. And that's how do we rebuild our democracy? Not just after four years of Donald Trump, but after all of the attacks that have come from Republican-controlled states, after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, what is a real democracy reform agenda look like? And Joe Biden's going to be able to do some of that, right? Bill Barr's not going to be attorney general anymore. Hallelujah. And there's going to be a lot of stuff that they can do on an executive level to try to help people vote and rebuild our democracy. But we also need different people in control of the U.S. Senate if we're going to restore the Voting Rights Act. We also need different people in control of states or different outcomes in states if we want to prevent another decade of Republican gerrymandering. And we need to use the momentum that we saw at the national level, at the state and local level. Because if there's gridlock in Washington, uh, then the states really become a lot of the laboratories for change. So so I, I would just urge people to think that this is a huge victory, but it's just one step in the process. And we really have to still do a lot more to make sure that everyone can vote, that everyone's votes count equally, and that we have a democracy that works for everybody instead of a select few. And we're getting closer to that point, but we still have a long way to go. That was so well said. And thank you so much, Ari Berman, for everything you've done to help explain the challenges to voting, to help defend our democracy. And, uh, you know, just keep going, because as you say, it's not over yet. We made a big step, but we've got to stay committed to the path we're on to preserve, protect and expand our democracy. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks so much, Secretary Clinton. It was a huge honor. Now I want to turn to another journalist, Soledad O'Brien. She's an award-winning documentarian and journalist. She's the founder of Soledad O'Brien Productions, a documentary production company, and the anchor and producer of the TV show Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien. Hello, Soledad. I am so happy to talk with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on this election. Secretary Clinton, thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. You know, I wanted to talk to you for a lot of different reasons. Your perspective, your experience, your understanding of the interplay between the press and the public in an election uh, like this one. And I guess I should start out asking you what you think of this election. What surprised you? What uh, you draw from it? Uh, not much surprised me, I would say, except for the fact that this election has been a four-year process. Uh, President Trump has never stopped running. And I think where the media has failed, although slowly kind of figured it out, is how do you handle a candidate who actually has no intention at all of kind of stepping into the job? 
So I think it's just been a very long and frustrating four years. For me, I've focused a lot on mistakes I think the media has made. The only thing that has surprised me has been the degree to which members of Congress and uh, sort of high-ranking people in the GOP have really capitulated. That has been a surprise. Well, I think you make two really important points. One about the GOP and the other piece about the press, I think you nailed it in a number of um, comments that I've seen you make over the years. It was apparently just too unbelievable for the press to accept what they saw right before their eyes, that this was a man who would bully and lie to uh, whatever degree he thought benefited him. And I, I hope that there is now a reckoning of some sort. Yeah, I think the media requires a narrative change constantly, right? That's what allows you to say, well, breaking news, this thing has now happened, the change of tone, there's a new whatever. Um, and so I think because of that, there's always this concept that, you know, maybe something is happening here because action is sort of what drives that breaking news agenda, if you will. And so I think that was part of it. And the other piece of it to me was just this, this idea of, and I think it's related around money, it's just not expensive to put pundits on TV. When I was at CNN, for example, you pay someone somewhere around $100,000 a year, but that meant for every show for an entire year. Now, I'm sure people are getting much more than that, and some are getting much less than that. But if you think about it, you now have this sunk cost of TV shows that just continue on and on and on with sort of moving the characters around, as long as you have there's this side versus that side, and you create this sense of urgency and also conflict, which is a good way to drive viewership. The thing that I thought most interesting on election night was when finally they ditched all the pundits, right? And they said, let's go to Allegheny County and <laughs> talk to this person. And it was like, oh, now we're reporting. We're going to a person and actually oh, so right. finding out on the ground. No one's going to uh, suss it out for us or give us their take or explain what the White House is doing. Just go to the voices on the ground. It's not brain surgery. It's reporting, but it does require money, live cameras. It requires reporters there. And so I, it was interesting to see that pivot and how much the quality improved when you removed all the noise of pundits and instead you just relied on, regardless of their political background, I have no idea the Allegheny County lady who's quite good. I, I don't know anything about her outside of she was a good interview giving us good factual insight into what was happening in an important county in a very important state. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I also wanted to mention that you have pointed out time and again that Black women are often written out of the election narrative that uh, we are usually hearing. 
And we know they're the most reliable voters. And something you tweeted really spoke to me. Um, You said, I would just like to point out that the cities (laughs) at the center of the action right now, Milwaukee, Philly, Detroit, Atlanta, virtually never have TV news crews falling over themselves to book, quote, regular folks, unquote, from there, or want to learn more about them or invite them onto their sets. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant The New York Times has an excellent article today on a Trump voter who's frustrated and wants people to understand why he didn't vote for for Biden. (laughs) Their 9,000th article on the Trump voter, for goodness Someone did a count, and I think they found 60 over the last... I mean, it's insane, right? It's just, you know, so I, I found that very frustrating because it's pretty clear that people don't want to have the Philly voter because that's who I'd want to talk to, especially if you consider how frequently disenfranchised those voters are, right? Like mm-hmm. you'd sort of say like, listen, I would fully understand if you didn't vote, right? right. <laughs> Native Americans, right. like- Who wants to stand vote? in line for 11 hours, yeah, right? like it's so <laughs> challenging. And for some reason, I think because the New York Times especially felt like they missed the boat on the last election, they have really doubled down on this and it's so tedious and, and ridiculous. You know, and I have always found it so weird to sort of parse through this- you know, who's responsible as opposed to a strategy that maybe the Democrats could think about of elevating all of these different groups. I'm really hopeful they can figure out the infighting, um, Mm -hmm. which probably has some health to it. It's probably got some good points to it. But this idea, right? Like, I think you look at a state like Arizona, which was Latinos and Native Americans. Right. And I'm sure Cindy McCain, Schlepping around on behalf of um, now President-elect Biden, I'm sure she got some votes too. And I'm going to guess in Arizona, some Lincoln Project ads were effective. So I'm hopeful. It's hard. I mean, you know better than anybody. How do you build a constituency with people who don't necessarily see eye to eye? I think the point is a really critical one. Let's get away from slicing and dicing the electorate. You know, politics should be a process of addition, not division. And nobody owns the truth. Nobody can say, oh, well, you know, if only you listen to me or, oh, no, if you only do that. So I I think it's important that we, you know, have this debate about the path forward. And it's going to be especially important because, sadly, at least as of now, you know, the Biden-Harris administration is not going to have a Senate. Uh, In fact, they're going to have the same obstacle called Mitch McConnell that Barack Obama and Joe Biden know from their own prior experience. But I really have to ask you about Kamala. Um, Here we are. And it was thrilling to see her wearing that white suffragist suit, standing on that platform. The pantsuit, the nod to Hillary Clinton. Well, it it goes all the way back 100 years uh, to the suffragists. But what does saying Madam Vice President mean to you? I just think it's amazing to have an opportunity to show America in all of its diversity. I really do. I mean, I I think often when we talk about diversity, we're sort of saying, well, Black people or, you know, Latinos, or we're really talking about this. And and I actually would love to see a cabinet that just looks like America. And, you know, a lot of the times you'd see photos from inside the, the round table of people sort of, you know, kowtowing to President Trump. And it was just all older white men. And it's just not the picture of a very diverse country. So just from that standpoint alone, I think it would be amazing. 
But, you know, I'm a Delta, which is a black sorority that focuses on service. She's an AKA. And I can tell you the AKAs are going to are already and will continue to be insufferable. There's always a little clashing anyway. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> to all well, so the now AKAs. you just got to get a Delta elected next. Come on, get moving. <laughs> yes, but we're happy for the AKAs. But yeah, I mean, it's it's great. And I think it. I remember my daughter, Cecilia, who's now about to start college. But when Barack Obama was elected, she used to say, so he's the first black man? And she was about six. I said, yeah. She's like, there hasn't been another one? I said, no. She's like, well, how many girls have there been? I'm like, that's some bad news for you, honey. There have been no girls. No girls have been present. You know, and it does matter in the, I think, narrative about the possibility of what America is, that really anybody can have this opportunity as long as they work hard and take advantage of what's in front of them. Uh, so, you know, I think in that regard, it's it's really important. Okay. So big question. What do you think this election tells us about the country we're living in? And what kind of progress do you think can be made with, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris now going to be, you know, in the White House? I hope one thing they focus on is taking those things that are norms, which is a terrible word because I don't think it ever connects to people. I I don't think we walk around saying, well, that's a norm and it doesn't mean anything. So I think there are a lot of things in government that we all learned, Hatch Act, (laughs) it's a norm Mm, and it has no actual teeth behind it. And I think probably the biggest thing we've learned is how much hinges on norms, which means you're relying on your colleagues to do the right thing. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. So maybe those norms need to be strengthened so that there's actual accountability. And we also have to figure out just misinformation and disinformation. I really am frustrated with the media because I think they talk out of both sides of their mouths. You know, they they elevate misinformation. They carry press conferences that are literally, they will report later that it was fully a lie <laughs> while, while also doing a special on misinformation. and <laughs> You can't really do that and hope to be serving democracy. So I don't know how much more can be done without addressing those things first, because those to me, having never been in government office, feel like the building blocks of helping people understand their democracy. And if we don't kind of create some kind of structure there. It's insane to me, and I'm not sure if the last minutes we've been talking, this has changed, but that there's some lady who just decided she's not going to verify the result. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the lady in charge of helping the Biden team transition into uh, the new administration has decided, I'm sure, uh, having been told by the Trump White House that she's just not going to cooperate not and she's not going to give not them the money. But I would have never thought that was a thing. Like yeah, I would have who, said, who would have no, page 79 of whatever the handbook is they give you all when you go into government should say like, yeah, item seven, go do ahead your and job. verify. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I really like what you said about accountability. And I am very much in that camp that there has to be accountability for the breaches that we saw, violating the Hatch Act, for example. But there were so many others. They would put people into positions that were not qualified, they were not confirmed, and they would leave them there, and courts would say, no, they have to go, and then they would move them around. I mean, there was so much that just undermined the rule of law and the expectation every American, regardless of political party, should have that the people in the government are actually following the rules. But I I think your average American thinks Bill Barr is President Trump's lawyer. 
I yeah. think your average American yeah. feels like the DOJ actually is there to do the president's bidding. I, I think we have failed, certainly, in explaining, you know, basic mechanisms of how government works. So I, I don't I think most people don't really understand those issues. Uh, so I, I think a lot of work has to be done on that front as well. But that's but yet- why I think your kind of journalism is more important now than ever, Soledad, because for whatever combination of reasons, kids are not getting civics education. People are not getting good information on which to make decisions, which is instrumental to how a democracy is supposed to work. So the press has a huge responsibility, and I can only hope and pray that they're going to step up better than they have uh, in the last four years. Yeah, I wish I could tell you like, yep, You got it. I think that we're going to have to wait and see. And if there's someone who can figure out how to make ratings out of not a lot of what made Trump, and I know because I was in the room for many of these conversations, made him appealing, right, was he'll who knows what he'll do. He's it's great for reality TV. You never know. It's the wild card. It's going to be interesting. And I, I think we have to figure out how to get certainly news to move away from that and move into educating people. The one thing I can say is when we started doing that on our show, because we were forced to, our ratings grew massively. People actually wanted to understand the context. And so on that front, I do feel hopeful because I think people actually want information and context. Well, from your lips to God's ears, my friend. I'm not sure how much he listens to me, but... <laughs> I just can't thank you enough. I just really wanted you to be part of this discussion. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Before we wrap up, there's one more election update I wanted to share. If you listened to last week's show, you'll remember Brandon Thomas, who was running for state representative in Tennessee. He ran a hard-fought campaign, but sadly, Brandon did not win that race. But he shared this message with us. Hi, everybody. This is Brandon Thomas. We didn't get the result we wanted uh, in this past election. However, I I am excited. I am thankful that uh, we have President-elect Joseph Biden, and I think that means a lot for our country. Me, I'm going to keep plugging. We know Tennessee in and of itself is a red state. You know, we know that it's going to take some time and we know that we can look to Georgia for that inspiration. You know, Georgia is right below us. Like if Georgia can do it, Tennessee can do it. We're going to figure out how to flip Tennessee blue again. And we're going to figure out how to make progress again. So, you know, I'm still in this fight. I know a lot of other people are as well. Don't discount us. I'm so proud of Brandon and everyone who decided to jump into the arena in this election. You know, I've thought a lot about this election, and obviously I've thought a lot about uh, the last election in 2016. It's very reassuring to see the outpouring of votes by people who want to see a change and voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. You know, back in 2016, I never wrote a uh, concession speech until it became necessary, but I did have a victory speech. And I went back and I looked at that because parts of it seemed so relevant to me today to Joe and Kamala's wonderful victory. And let me just read from it because it's the tone and the tenor that I think was captured this weekend 
when so many people spontaneously poured out into the streets across America, singing and dancing and laughing and still wearing masks in most places, but just so filled with joy. So here's what I had hoped to be able to say. With your children on your shoulders, neighbors at your side, friends old and new standing as one, you renewed our democracy and you changed its face forever. If you dig deep enough through all the mud of politics, eventually you hit something hard and true, a foundation of fundamental values that unite us as Americans. You proved that today in a country divided by race and religion, class and culture, and often paralyzing partisanship, a vision of a hopeful, inclusive, big-hearted America prevailed. That is how I'm feeling today, and I hope you are too. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin and Kathleen Russo with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Lauren Peterson, Rob Russo, and Lona Valmoro. Our engineer is Zach McNeese. Original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like the show, tell someone else about it. You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions and comments or even ideas for future episodes to youandmebothpod at gmail.com. Come back next week when we'll be speaking with Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who has seen a lot of ups and downs of this election firsthand as governor of Michigan. Don't miss her and don't miss it. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.